Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Sex trying to get loose. He'll fire. He knocks it down. But Carl slammed it home. Garland upstairs. Oh! Six to this A thunderous dunk. And Allen blocked the shot at the rim. Welcome to the Chase Down Podcast, part of the Cast Media family. I'm your host, Justin Rowan. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Zoom. Half a million businesses connect using Zoom, a single platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video. Zoom enables real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And connecting with me now live via Zoom is my co-host, Carter Rodriguez. Carter, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. We have the guy that has... (laughs) basically made the last month of podcast possible for our snobby (laughs) non-college basketball watching asses and i am so so very grateful that we have this guest on but i'll let you go ahead and introduce him justin i I was going to say if you want to just take the wheel go ahead uh absolutely adam spinella has been a favorite of ours uh because he gives us the the good thorough breakdowns of strengths and weaknesses i try my best to not skip the weaknesses parts even though i'm i'm mostly trying to talk myself into all these prospects but really appreciate your time thank you so much for coming on the podcast adam how are you doing today uh, gentlemen, I am so glad to be here. Thank you uh, for having me and, and for the way too kind introduction here, but it's almost draft day. And this is such an exciting time, uh, not just for all draft heads like myself, but I think for the Cavs organization, looking at really being able to add an important piece as they're building towards the future right here. I think the 14th pick is one where you can find really good value in this draft and just looking forward to diving into some of the different prospects or uh, moves that might be available for Cleveland here today. So I, before, before we jump into the content, I actually want you to plug your stuff right off the jump because it's awesome. Um, you know, it, it, it became an immediate must sub for me on Substack. So go ahead and plug your stuff where people can find you, um, now. So we don't, so, you know, we don't, we don't want to miss any of those, those early turn off stragglers at the end, <laughs> go ahead and plug your stuff right now. Sure. So, uh, the box and one underscore on Twitter is where we put all of our NBA draft and video content out there. Our YouTube channel is just my name, Adam Spinella, where we've got a ton of prospect breakdowns. I think last check, we're at about 73, uh, draft prospects that are eligible in this cycle that have some scouting report videos out there and then, uh, doing some mock drafts, some other Intel pieces, team by team previews. And then on our Substack page, you can find that in all written content, as well as uh, for a paid subscriber fee there, we do have some Intel reports and other things available based on rumors we're hearing from around the league. I'd love to dive into kind of your process a little bit, because I'm always curious, um, every time we have a draft expert on, we we kind of ask how you go about it and how you kind of weigh the different aspects of the job, because there's the player evaluations, there's the mock draft aspect, and then there's also the big boards. When you put the work in do you typically put more weight into your big board rankings or is it the evaluations your themselves that you kind of prioritize like if people are trying to get a real good feel for the prospects would you suggest going off of the rankings or the actual analysis so for me i try to construct my big board just around what i'm seeing and what i feel based on the film evaluations not necessarily intel or mainstream uh kind of feedback there so if there's a guy that i'm really not that high on but i hear everyone else has him as a top 10 pick he's going to fall pretty far down my overall big board um i always think that the film is really good for getting a baseline feel for a prospect but a lot of times the big board rankings can help put it in the context for how other people might see them in comparison to each other Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of times the difficulty of what we do as draft scouts isn't in analyzing the strengths and improvement areas of a player. It's in trying to figure out how to value that next to everybody else who's involved in the draft class. So I think a little bit of both is always important, but at the end of the day, those big boards tend to be uh, a really great resource at the end of the day, because they're cumulative of every type of prospect that we've put together. Yeah. How how do you avoid getting, letting the noise kind of color your opinion, your own analysis you know, because like, I can't help but allow it to happen myself where it's like, okay, well, Jalen Williams seemed interesting. And then he flies up everyone's big board. So like, oh, maybe I need to value, but like, how do you, how do you kind of like both 
like be out, open to outside analysis to kind of, you know, cause everyone has blind spots, right. Versus, you know, kind of holding true to what you believe about a prospect. I think part of it is trusting your gut. And for me, like the more that I've been doing this, this is year four, I believe, of doing some YouTube uh, video breakdowns on this and really diving heavily into the scouting world. I've started to trust my convictions a little bit more just because I feel more secure and, hey, I've put in the work, I've done the time, I've seen some outcomes of, you know, three years in the NBA for that first class that I scouted, start to see how some of it really translates. Uh, But it's hard to do, man. Like I, I am as susceptible to, going down the rabbit hole and diving in and wanting to believe exactly what we're hearing out there from all the other experts in the industry. Like I'm, I'm no better than anybody else at this. So we all trying to learn and steal from each other. And I think the, the internet and for lack of a better term, draft Twitter has (laughs) been, it's, it's been really impactful in the basketball world because it helps direct people's eyeballs in directions that they might not naturally go. I think that's a good thing. So long as you can handle it the right way and not let that kind of become your opinion, just inform you of what to look at. Yeah. And for me, I find the more people I listen to, like when it gets to draft season and honestly, I'm, I'm ready for this draft to be over. Um, I don't like picking at 14. There's too many uh, factors that go into it. You don't know who's going to be available. Um, but I, I just like listening to so many different perspectives because everybody has things that they value more than others. Uh, people look at things different ways. So just kind of getting that well-rounded view, I, I think is really informative. Are there certain traits that you typically value a little higher? with some prospects than others, or, or are there some traits that you don't care as much about? There certainly are. Uh, so I am a basketball coach by nature. That's my full-time job on, you know, push this stuff aside with the scouting. I'm a coach first and foremost, and I construct, you know, our, our style of play in a way that I've been coached the way that I think the, the game should be played. And, and it's hard to separate that from the scouting process. So I love shooting. Hmm. I think that's the great, kind of separator uh, for a bunch of different prospects. If you have the ability to to knock down the three, you can stick as a role player in this league in some fashion. It allows you to play through different mistakes. It allows you to really fill out rosters and create a career for yourselves. Um, I think that a lot of times there are some smaller pet peeves that definitely bother me that, uh, that show up on film. I think, you know, turnovers are, are obviously a big one guys that have a really high turnover rate guys that don't get to the free throw line a ton or live in the mid range. Like there are some small bugaboos that just aren't stylistically how I prefer the game of basketball to be played that I try to be transparent enough in our evaluations to say, you know, if you really are drawn to somebody who does these things, he's very good at it. It's just not my cup of tea, but I'm also okay. When we do our scouting reports on these guys saying like, if I'm the Cavs at 14, it's just not the type of player that I would draft. That's okay. That's for me to say, but that doesn't mean that he would be a bad pick if he ends up going there. Mm. I, I mean, this is a perfect launching point for the preview you did for the Central Division, uh, which you you did a, a breakdown for uh, every team in the Central Division. You guys can check that out on YouTube. And you had three targets um, kind of picked out for the Cavs, and that was Johnny Davis, Ochai Abaji, and Malachi Branham. Um, the, it's funny because the, the noise surrounding the draft has kind of had Branham up and down. I've heard people say he's not going to make it out of the top 10. And now you're looking at a lot of mock drafts and he's there, whether the Cavs are selecting him or not, he he's on the board at that point. I feel like when it comes to Johnny Davis and Branham, I don't think there's any scenario. I'd be really, really surprised if they got to pick between those two. I feel like one might be there, not both. Uh, I would love it if both were there because that's just, you know, a, a better position to be I in. I wouldn't love it. It's too stressful. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to me, I would just go Johnny Davis in, in that scenario. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? I do. I have Johnny Davis as a, a top 10 guy on my overall big board. Uh, big fan of, of his competitiveness more than anything. Um, you know, the ability to knock down shots. We talked about shooting being something that, that I'm really attracted to. He played a really different type of style this year at Wisconsin. He was the lone wolf on their, their roster and had to take a lot of really difficult shots. Uh, he's not a blitzing fast athlete who puts a ton of pressure on the rim as a downhill attacker. So one of the things with Davis is he lives in the mid range as a pull-up guy. And I know you heard me say a few seconds ago, I don't love guys that are high volume mid range shooters, but I think if you change Davis's role, you play him off of a Darius Garland, you know, be able to spot up around the pick and roll. He's a very good catch and shoot threat from three. 
and somebody that at the very least, if he's run off the line, we know he can create for himself. He drills mid-range shots. He's a pretty good passer. So uh, a lot to like there on the offensive end. But for me, the, Davis's best strength is actually his defense. He's super competitive, great trailing shooters around screens and blowing up options. Uh, you know, when you're a high volume scorer in college, it's very easy to take a player two off. I really appreciate about Davis that he didn't do that, that he fought every single possession, embraced the assignment of guarding the other team's best player and, and was fantastic on that end of the floor, despite playing 30 minutes a night and having to score 20 in order for the Badgers to win. So I got to ask about Davis because you talk about kind of believing in him as a catch and shoot three point shooter. The numbers aren't like awesome for him as a shooter. Do you think that's a byproduct of just kind of the role he was forced into at Wisconsin? I think so. I think, you know, part of that is the other guys that he was playing around weren't credible threats to get all the way to the basket that those guys are not collapsing defenses. So Davis has maybe a little bit less time to get his shot off on the perimeter, getting a little bit more of that extra attention off ball. Uh, I think he's going to be fine. I think shooting form is one of those things that if you have solid form, then the makes will eventually translate. There's nothing mechanically that I would change about Davis. Mm-hmm. So willing to buy into him. Again, King Cam always- Reddish disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> There's that always the prettiest bad shot I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. But I, I'm willing to, to buy into Davis for a lot of those intangibles, the defensive effort, and then knowing that if he scales back his offensive role just a little bit, I think he can find that efficiency. It's interesting. Sorry, Carter, to cut you off, but it's interesting given you saying that you like three-point shooting. um, You have two mid-range assassins here in Johnny Davis and Malachi Branham. Uh, Branham obviously shot a lot better from three, but the pull-up numbers weren't necessarily there. Out of those two prospects, is there a guy that you feel more confident out of Davis and Branham that they'll be able to develop that pull-up three at, at a decent volume? You know, from my limited vantage point here, I'd probably side with Davis. Uh, the biggest thing for me is is the willingness to take them. Uh, you know, Branham, it's not that he didn't make many pull-ups from three. It's that he didn't take many. I think he only took nine on the year, if I'm remembering correctly, off the top of my head, which for a high-volume scorer in the Big Ten, that's, that's a really low mark. I mean, he lived in the mid-range. I also think Davis is a little bit more violent of a creator with the ball in his hands takes open space a little bit more cleanly, whereas Branham loves to have somebody on his shoulder that he's banging with. Um, Again, stylistically, I'm a little bit more attracted to Davis's game, but I do think that his pull-up range is probably maybe a half step ahead of where Branham's is right now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, The latest uh, mock that you did, you had Branham still landing in Cleveland and you know, but he's not high on your big board. I think he was 26th or 27th. Do you think that the Cavs would be making a mistake taking Branham? Or do you just think like, hey, I might not have him rated super high, but the fit in the it is good enough that, it, you know, you see the upside and then making those that kind of uh, pick? Yeah, so a lot of times, and I'll, I'll preface this here, our mock drafts are more about what we think will happen, not necessarily what we would do if we were general managers. Uh, but with Malachi Branham, you know, I, I think your last point there, the fit might be good enough in Cleveland to the point where he's the right type of guy to reach on a little bit farther down my personal big board. Um, I understand the fit, the need for another scorer, another wing who's got decent size, I think fits in with the roster that they have right now. Uh, The concern about Branham that I have is strongly on the defensive end. I just don't think he's a very polished or or great athlete right now to be able to handle NBA wings one-on-one. But when you have Mobley and Jarrett Allen on the back line behind you, that allows you to get away with a little bit more on the defensive end. So I think the infrastructure that's currently in place in Cleveland would benefit Malachi Branham. I also, you know, from what I've learned about him as a kid, he's a little bit of a homebody, somebody that really likes to, to be close to home. <laughs> nothing we're we're laughing because we, that's, we, that's we, everybody we on this you're team. Barking up. <laughs> nothing wrong with that at all. But I think that for his sake, it would be the best benefit to him to be as close to home as possible and to be in Cleveland. So for me, I, I just I see that as being a really good fit for Branham. And because of the infrastructure of the team, they have everything around him to make him as successful as possible. 
Yeah, I, I think Branham's the guy Carter and I are most divided on. Um, after uh, Mathurin, uh, Griffin, and Davis, Branham's my next wing uh, for cast-specific fit. Um, I, I know the three-point volume wasn't great, but I, I just like how he's able to get to his spots, rise up. Um, I think his passing's a, a little better than he gets credit for. Uh, n- nothing spectacular, but I, I think he's a solid passer and can be a connecting piece. On the defensive end of the floor, do you think... Do you, do you think there's physical limitations to him becoming a good defender? Or is this somebody that, if he lands in the right situation, can kind of adapt and grow into that role and at least become, you know, a, a solid defender? Because he does have the strength. He does have the length. I'm just wondering if it's a mentality thing or if this is maybe just, you know, a little bit of potential in hiding. Yeah. So I don't know about you guys. When I played basketball and I was 19 or 18 years old, I was a horrible defender. So (laughs) I think there's a little bit of youth that goes into this process. Um, He definitely has some of those raw tools that you look at and say, okay, we can teach him to be pretty solid on that end of the floor. He is long. I think strong is the right word for him. I can see him guarding threes and fours a little bit more than guarding twos and threes. Um, But at the end of the day too, like I think projecting defense for guys who aren't good at it is always a little bit risky because mm-hmm. there's, it's not just about buy-in and effort, which are really important on the defensive end of the floor. There's an element of just fluidity and movement that goes into, you know, avoiding screens on the perimeter, fitting through tight spaces, turning your body in a certain way that allows you to see and anticipate decisions from the weak side. So um, not to say that Branham can't get better, but I think that, he's starting a little bit farther behind a bunch of his contemporaries at his age coming into this draft. So I, I want to ask you about him on the offensive side, because the defensive end, like I'm kind of okay. Like the fact that he did measure pretty much exactly the same size as Igbaji, where I was like, Oh, Igbaji's going to be the, the, you know, the tougher, more, you know, more able to go guard up kind of wing prospect. Whereas I'm like, well, if he gets his, you know, if he can figure out the middle end, I think, Brandon does have the body to be able to do this. I'm worried about the offensive end because he doesn't pull up from three. And, you know, I, if you watch your scouting video, I think the most, the part that made me the most troubled was how wide his driving angles tend to be. Um, and, you know, there's some clips of him attacking some big 10 bigs that are not exactly, you know, NBA athletes and really having a hard time getting around them. And, with the Cavs not having elite post-up threats right now, I'm a little worried that NBA teams are just going to be able to switch bigs onto him and he won't be able to beat them off the dribble. He does have craft in kind of that Karis Levert type of way. Do you think that's going to be a problem for him or am I over-indexing on this? No, it is something that I think is is a little bit of a problem. So there's, there's two parts of it, right? One, I talked about the mid-range heavy arsenal. I think this year, the only guys in the NBA to not average 20 a game and take that similar you know, percentage of their shots from the mid-range area were Chris Paul and Markel Fultz. Right now, Chris Paul, elite shooter at that range, Markel Fultz, yeah, we're starting to talk about some guys that just don't stretch the floor really effectively but play with the ball in their hands. Um, Branham, to me, takes a lot of shots in that mid-range for three reasons. One, he's really damn good at it. So I don't want to discount That him matters. It, it does matter. He is a tough shot maker. That's one of the hardest things to teach in, in basketball. And it's one of the reasons he's wildly successful and averaged 17 a game over his final 15 with the Buckeyes as a freshman. The, the other two areas, number two, he's not a very good pull-up shooter from three. And because of that, he has to take more shots in the mid-range. It's a better shot for him. Third, and, and this is the most important one to me, which is where I agree with you, Carter. He doesn't reliably separate from his man to be able to put pressure on the rim. So he lives in the mid range, not just because he's good at it, but because he has to. And that's something that always scares me away from wanting to be drafting, you know, a guy who we would envision being a top two or three option in your offense. You want guys like that who can break down the defender one-on-one, put a little bit of pressure on the rim, force help defenders to rotate. And then from there have easy kicks and reads as to whether they're going to score it or kick it out to an open teammate. It's all about creating scrambles on the offensive end, forcing the help defense to move. And if you can't separate from your man one-on-one, you don't accomplish that. So stylistically, uh, I'm not falling in love with a guy who's hitting tough mid-range bucket after tough mid-range bucket. Another thing I noticed about the way the Buckeyes play, 
they have their big men stand in the lane and seal. And I think you can see it on one of yeah. these clips that you're watching right here. They have two big guys that they play at the same time. One sets a high ball screen for Branham. The other sits in the lead in the lane and seals his defender off. All of those little tricks helped create more space for Branham to become a finisher at the basket. And he still wasn't elite at that level. So my concern is more about the rim pressure than it is necessarily from three, but I think both of them combined are part of the reason why Branham really lowered down on my board. Given the caliber of prospects in this range, if you were the Cavs, would you be more inclined to take a big swing or go with a proven commodity? Or I guess another way to ask that is, is there players in this range with that real high upside that you think justifies taking the chance? I think there are, and I think there will be, um, you know, Usman Jang is one guy who I know has been tied to the Cavaliers a little bit over the last couple of weeks. He definitely has a really high ceiling, but I'm not sure if I'm We're sold petrified. On the, yeah, I'm not sold on the fit with a lot of the guys that they have on their roster currently. Uh, another guy that I'm, I'm quite fond of is Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara. I think that he has the potential to be it, that three level type of scorer, like we're talking about with Brandon, where he's more mid range only. I really appreciate what Jalen Williams brings to the table while also being a 40% catch and shoot threat from three. So those are two, I think, higher ceiling type of swings that the Cavaliers could make. And I would understand it. Um, I also am a, I'm a firm believer just in terms of team building that Cleveland's probably not close enough to competing for a championship to the point where you would sit there at 14 and say, let's take somebody that helps us win games right now. Mm -hmm. I think that anytime you end up in the lottery, you have to be able to, to take the long view here and say, okay, in a couple of years, is this somebody that can really be part of our core five or six rotation that eventually helps us win a championship? I, I want to ask you about the guy that most people would perceive as being that draft pick. And he was the third one on your list, which is Oche Agbaji from Kansas. He's a billion years old, rough, <laughs> rough, rough estimate. Um, you know, and like, I I've said this, like, cause like he was the first person I fell in love with and then fell out of love with. And I'm kind of finding myself back, um, <laughs> you know, because, you know, it's a big red flag to me to be at a major program like that and not get draft buzz until you're a senior. Um, why shouldn't that concern me? If I, if I'm a Cavs fan, why is Carter dumb? In other words, <laughs> correct. So I think. O'Shea Egbaji fits into a very clean box in terms of what you would ask him to do at the NBA level. Stand on the perimeter, knock down threes, be a very good athlete in the open floor, and come in and defend other solid athletic wings. If that's all that you're going to ask of him, I feel pretty confident in saying that he can do those things. Now, where I get scared with Egbaji is putting the ball on the floor a little bit more. I don't love his pull-up game. I don't love the ability to put pressure on the rim. Like he is a fantastic athlete when he's playing in transition as he is right now, or if he's, you know, flying off of back screens and back cuts in order to get alley-oops. But as soon as he has to be athletic while dribbling, it goes out the window. So hmm. the appeal of Agbaji is a little bit more instant impact. And if you just ask him to do a specific set of, th of things, he can be very good at it. And I understand the appeal of getting kind of that very solid, dependable option in the middle part of the first round. I think that especially this year, there's good value in doing that. The question is, is that going to be a high enough ceiling of impact and or are the Cavaliers going to be committed to playing more of that spread pick and roll style that allows him to be just that role player spotting up on the perimeter and knocking down threes? Is, is there a skill that he has that maybe if he kind of improves it or amplifies the volume on it that he could end up having a little more upside that's perceived or do you not really see a flash of something that might hint at more potential i think the challenge in going at some of those hints is like carter said he's a billion years old right mm -hmm. like if they were going to turn into legitimate actualized weapons they probably would have done so by now uh, particularly knowing Bill Self and, and kind of the player development scheme that they have here. Uh, Agbaji has gone from a, a very lowly rated recruit into a guy that we're talking about going in the lottery or the top 20 of this draft. He has already improved his game so much, but in order to get him to this point, he's needed to keep his game simple. I probably think that that's a trend that continues at the next level. So I, I want to ask like, 
I feel like prospects like this, everyone assumes a degree of safety that might not be there because if the jumper isn't quite as good as it looks at Kansas, like he's Tony Snell, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think Carter just froze. I think he did. You know what? That's fine. Um, it, let's go from one older prospect to another, which is Jalen Williams, who you kind of identified as a high upside swing, which to me is interesting because the shooting numbers weren't great before this year. And I know he hit a good percentage of those catch and shoot threes. But at the same time, we're talking about 16 makes. And for me, that makes me a little concerned when he is the same age as Isaac Okoro, pretty much, um, who, who's already on the team. Um, he's a little bit shorter, even though he's longer. Um, and Okoro, I mean, you, you look at it, he made about on the same volume, 38% from three at the NBA range ra rather than the range Jalen Williams is. Are you confident in the jumper with Jalen Williams? And, and why do you feel like there's still a lot of upside there for someone that's 21 years old? Yeah, I am confident in Williams. So the first thing I'll say with him is the intangibles that I've heard from people that have worked with him, been around him, really, really check out. Hard worker, continuing to be in the gym and really getting better. He had a late growth spurt to grow into his body where it is right now. So he had a lot of point guard skills and now he knows how to use them. I love his craft and handling ability, like just a, a really, really skilled player for his size. One of the things that I always ask myself with prospects is why, right? Why are we seeing a guy who is only taking 20 catch and shoot shots? Why are we seeing a guy who you know doesn't have this high volume of, of whatever it ends up being? And, and for Williams, what I keep coming back to when I watch Santa Clara is he was so damn good for a mid-major team that they needed him to do pretty much everything with the ball in his hands. So the, the lack of catch and shoot volume is simply about the coaching staff needing to put him in the position to play with the ball in his hands, as opposed to, well, he's actually a really good catch and shoot guy, but how do we get him the ball in those circumstances without having a really good handler or creator? In addition to Williams, that type of skill wasn't realized frequently. I, I want to ask about Williams and, and draft slot because if it's me and he's there and, you know, guys like Davis, Griffin, et cetera, are off the board, I just I just would take Williams. But do you think that there is a degree of like too rich for your blood at 14 for him? Or do you believe enough in him as a prospect just to say, I think he's the best guy on the board. I'm just taking him because I think he's got the highest upside. Yeah, he's 15 on my board, Carter. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big Jalen Williams guy. Mm -hmm. I as I went back and did kind of my second rewatch here last week, the biggest thing that, that stood out to me was, I don't know if there's a major flaw in his offensive game right now. Um, and that's, that's really appealing for a guy who's still fairly young at 21 and, and continuing to grow into his body. Uh, I'm, I'm turning into a really big fan. So I don't think it's a reach at all at 14. I did I, want to ask about the, one of the weaknesses that you at least showed in, in your video, which was that he's not your get you out of jail free guy. Uh, on on in isolation do you think that that you know does that mean much to you because to me like it does raise some like alarm bells and this is coming from a guy who loves him that is the athleticism not there and is that is he getting kind of swallowed up uh when when the when the lights turn on to him the brightest in those situations or do you think it's just a byproduct of you know his current situation yeah, he's a tad square, uh, not a great space creator, but I think at his size, you know, he's very good at feeling and playing through contact. So he can still get to his spots if you give him those ball screens to be able to get that small, uh, you know, avenue to get past his man. I think what's important is that he shoots the ball well when teams try to go underneath those screens. So they can't, which means now, you know, defenders are attaching to his shoulder. They go over the top of those ball screens. He gets them on his hip and on his back. Now he's able to make the right play nine times out of 10, which I really appreciate. Uh, it, it depends on what you ask him to do, right? Like if, if he's asked to be an isolation scorer in the NBA, I do think he will struggle. But if you play him as a secondary ball handler out of the pick and roll, somebody who attacks closeouts because he's a good enough shooter, forces the momentum of defenders to come at him really tightly, then he can go past them. I think he's going to have no problem. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds like the type of player that the Cavs need. <laughs> and and I, one thing that I learned from that from is, is really my evaluation of Tyrese Halliburton. Like I wasn't in love with his first step, his quickness or his shooting form. I didn't think that he was going to be a very effective isolation scorer, but at the end of the day, he shoots it well enough to have gravity on the perimeter. 
And he's very, very crafty at knowing how to get to his spot. So not an isolation creator, but still incredibly effective. And, and that's what's kind of swung me on Jalen. I'm trying to I'm trying to poke holes in Jalen because I'm too in love with him. So I'm <laughs> going to ask another. I'm going to actually ask the same question that I asked about Malachi Branham. So you're playing the Celtics. Al Horford gets switched on to him. Does that stall out the offense? Is he someone who can who can attack a mismatch with a big on him, or do you think it's going to be a thing he's going to need to work on over time. I think it's definitely something he needs to work on. I would put more stock in his athleticism over Branham's in that regard. Just right now. I think he's got a little bit more pop to him. Um, I also think that that's a, a hard thing for a lot of players to do, right? Like if we're talking about guys that can go past an Al Horford or a solid defensive big on a switch in the late clock situations, if you're able to do that consistently, you're probably a top 10 pick in this draft, if not any other draft. So uh, where the Cavs are at at 14, this is kind of a scapegoat answer to your question here, but like, it's kind of not that huge of a deal to me because I don't expect to get that guy here. Yeah. It's probably not fair of me to hold either guy to that standard. And I've gotten some pushback from some of our listeners on maybe asking uh, a 14th overall pick to be able to solve too many problems right now. Right. Yeah, and especially with a lot of talent already on the roster. I think a, a lot of what the Cavs needed last season was supplemental playmaking. And as they continue to lose those secondary creators, whether it's Ricky or Sexton uh, or or Levert, like it, it just it, the cumulative toll was a lot there. I'm I'm pretty high on Williams, too. I really value playmaking with this roster. Um after the three of Mathurin, Griffin, Davis, uh, I had Branham. There is one wing I have between Branham and Williams, and that's Dale and Terry. And the reason why I have Terry a little bit higher than Williams is I think the passing vision is at a really, really high level. And if he was asked to do a lot of that initiation and that uh, pick and roll playmaking, I think that's something he can do. He is a year younger. He's a little bigger uh, or longer, I should say. He's not as strong. Um, And the defense is already at a really high level. Tell me why I'm wrong in this Jalen versus Dalen debate, because I I really like both of them. I would be happy with a lot of these guys in this range. I've already talked myself into a pretty extensive list of guys. Um, But am I right to kind of put them in the same group together? Yes and no. Um, I I love the way you phrase that question, right? Tell me why I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But so Dalen Terry, like I'll go back to something we we mentioned a couple minutes ago, that if you're going to play with the ball in your hands at the NBA, whether it's being a scorer or a creator, you have to be able to put credible pressure on the rim. And based on who Dalen Terry has been thus far through his career at Arizona, I haven't seen that in the half-court setting. Really good facilitator, unbelievable field, great in the open floor, developed a solid catch and shoot, you know, shot towards the end of the season. Um, But I'm not sold on him being somebody that can put a lot of pressure on a help defense to score one-on-one near the basket. I think he's very, very good and long. So that point where, like we were talking about with a guy like Jalen Williams, when he gets somebody behind him, like you see right here, he can snake through the defense and and get to the, to get to the rack. Okay. Um, I think of Terry, as being one of these guys that is going to carve out a 10 year career, but never score or never average 10 points a game, right? Mm. Just a really good role player who does a lot of the little things plays 16 to 24 minutes a night comes in and defends the opposing team's best player for a few stretches, hounds opposing point guards thrives in transition and is a very good table setter for others just makes the right play. I like think a lower was, level Iguodala. No, like Iguodala is obviously yeah. the, the apex predator of that kind of archetype, but kind of like in that mold. Very much so. So there's like there's Iguodala, there's Kyle Anderson a little bit. I think Terry's much more quick twitch than a guy like slow. I, I think, I think that's fair. Um, we might be. <laughs> or uh, even like a Tomas Sadoransky, which isn't something that inspires a ton of confidence for you know being a top 20 pick, but I think in terms of play style that connector piece who's not always looking to score but ends up with solidly efficient numbers at the end of the day that's what i would expect more about terry he's an energy guy he's got to be able to come in and play with energy on the defensive end get out in the open floor because that's where he thrives i think right now the idea of terry is a little bit greater than the production that you would actually get from him but as you mentioned he's young he's still developing 
I think that he did not play in a scheme that was really well suited for his strengths in the half court game at Arizona. I'd be really excited to see how that pops at the NBA level, but I do think there are going to be too many guys that I just prefer to him still on the board in that 14, 15, 16 range where I would say, you know what, let's pump the brakes a little bit on Terry because uh, he's still a lot of an unknown in terms of how he impacts the game in the half court. And, and that kind of ties into a, an interesting report from uh, Mike Scotto of Hoops Hype, where he mentioned that the, the Cavs may be open to trading back. Now, that obviously doesn't mean they are going to trade back. Uh, this is misinformation season. I can think of a million motivations off the top of my head because um, he did say it would be for a future first, which if they get a first next year, all of a sudden the Stepien rule is no longer in play. They can trade all of their future picks if they want to make a consolidation move. Uh, it may be seeding a little bit of doubt in Charlotte's mind saying, well, the Cavs might trade out of that position. So maybe we have to take Mark Williams or a center at 13 because we really need one. Um, it may be to, you know, uh, take it, it just an advantage of the opportunity if they feel this tier of the draft is a little deeper than others might. And I'd like to get your read on how deep this tier is that the Cavs are in at 14. Like how far back could they theoretically go without you feeling like they've really kind of dropped a tier uh, in terms of the caliber of prospect? Yeah. So the way that I kind of set up my own prospect tiers are different ledges based on outcome. Um, The top three or four tiers are always reserved for guys that I believe are going to be long-term starters in this league there's a general rule of thumb that there are never more than 20 to 25 players in a draft class who end up signing an additional contract after their rookie scale deal is up. So if there are 20, 25 players who do that, there's probably 10 to 12 who end up being starter caliber players over the long run. Uh, This class, I gave 14 guys those grades. So in terms of moving backwards, like (laughs) we're kind of at the edge of it right now. Okay. Far as I would go. Um, I think players 15, 16, and 17 are all high ceiling swings that I can understand making a, a kind of a move for in the lottery. Once we get beyond that, I think we're looking at more specialty role players and guys that you better be getting an additional asset if you move back and, and really trusting that that asset's going to help you over the long term. So I feel more comfortable with where the Cavs are at at 14. Uh, as opposed to moving back that far. But Mm -hmm. if it's a spot or two, just to make sure that somebody leapfrogs Charlotte, for example, or whoever it ends up being, uh, totally would understand that. There, there is one hilarious scenario that I'm, I'm like, I, I kind of want to say put at 14 because I like the options there. I, I feel like there's a chance someone slides, like maybe Johnny Davis ends up there, like that'd be incredible. Um, but there is a scenario if Houston were to trade 17 and the Bucks pick next year, we'd be able to make the joke that Houston traded Jared Allen to move up three spots in this year's draft, which w- would just be absolutely perfect um but we we talked about two playmakers in jalen and dalen and the kind of higher upside version of that is uzman jang i i know you mentioned that you're nervous about him we're nervous about him too but that's also the pick that if the Cavs were to go that direction i would be like okay this may not work out but if he even hits like that 85th percentile outcome this could be a real, real difference maker for the team. What what are kind of the the swing factors with him? What what's kind of your read on where he is likely to land? Because there's obviously a very large distance between his floor and his ceiling. A huge range there, and I think part of the reason why I don't give him a lottery grade is because I really struggle with guys that are that erratic in terms of the potential outcomes. Uh, Usman Jang, the actualized version of him and, and maximized to the best that he can be is a six foot 10 point guard who creates out of the pick and roll drills, pull-ups is an elite floater shooter, gets to the free throw line a decent amount and is able to play off ball and, and kill it from three while being an elite defender of other point guards. I mean, a six foot well, 11, like guy, you're, you are like describing made in a lab the perfect wing to play with this group it's just can he get there no doubt about it and that's what what kind of scares you away from it is you know he has a very small sample size of success in the nbl he was really struggling at the first half of the season rebounded very strongly and played well but when you look at the numbers as a whole from the last two seasons he shot 27 percent from three 
in French competition and in pro competition in the NBL. That's a red flag if you're going to play off ball. I always say that if you don't shoot it well, you better be really damn good at what you do with the ball in your hands. And the thing with Jang, he has some upside to be a, a pretty good one-on-one scorer, but he doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim either. He is much more of a floater, a mid-range pull-up type of guy, kind of shies away from contact on the offensive end. I think that can change with age, maturity, and, and physical growth, but his game is a lot more finesse than it is power or athleticism. So um, I, don't, I look at him and I don't see him as this incredibly toolsy athlete who's 6'11". I see him as a really hypersized guard who knows how to use his length to his advantage, but probably needs to play with the ball in his hands a fair amount at the next level. I think the Cavs could probably benefit from having another point wing, so to speak, another facilitator, like you mentioned, Justin, a little bit more passing to this team to be able to get that with defensive length that can guard multiple positions. I understand why that checks boxes in theory for the Cavaliers organization. But anybody who falls in love with the highlights of Jang has to be very, very careful because he's a long ways away from reaching that type of, of impact. And again, I can understand swinging for the fences with where you're at at 14. This is probably the last time the Cavs are going to have a pick this high for the next couple of seasons. But just be very careful about buying into him too quickly hook, line and sinker with the offense. Trust me, we are we are plenty appropriately scared, Adam. <laughs> uh, I do want to ask about a different kind of swing. Um, a player, an uh, AJ Griffin, who at the beginning of the year, I don't think anyone would have thought would have been close to fourteen. Um, but you know, the the health concerns um, looks like maybe he lost a little bit off the top athletically after his injuries. Do you think he's someone who? It's a bit of a two part question. Do you think he's someone who? is likely to drop to 14 and are the Cavs the right team to take a swing is 14 the lowest he should go if he lands there. So uh, I think 14 would be a reasonable spot for the Cavaliers to take a swing on him. Um, I have him, I think 16th on my board. I can understand anything from 12 onward for making a decent amount of, of sense for a guy like AJ Griffin. I am mortified of taking AJ Griffin. It's not something that I would really, yeah, um, I am out on the defense. I think losing two years of his teenage years, as well as losing a lot of athleticism has zapped him on that end of the floor. And he's very far behind developmentally in terms of rotations, understanding all of those things. Now he's, he's got the potential to be an absolutely elite shooter. If he regains 10% of his athleticism, he can put pressure on the rim and be a really good scorer in the half court. And at the end of the day, if you're Cleveland, you have the defensive infrastructure to blanket him with all of the rim protection that they have behind. So I would understand for a lot of these guys like Branham or A.J. Griffin, who I have defensive concerns about, why Cleveland is the optimal landing spot for somebody like them. I would be fine with the Cavs taking a swing on them there at 14. That is just potential in hiding. (laughs) (laughs) my goodness i do want to ask about the defense because obviously his dad was an elite defensive specialist um and you know i i feel like i found that a lot of these guys at duke don't look good on tape defensively especially on the wing like uh, we were talking in our in our discord with our listeners about uh, how bad tatum looked on defense at times when he was at duke and now he's you know one of the best defending elite wings in the league um on you know, do you think there's a degree, any chance that there's just like maybe it's some infrastructure at college, or do you think it's like I he has legit physical limitations that are preventing him from playing good defense? Come so, for Coach K, attack him. No, I love Coach K. Um, <laughs> that's an unpopular opinion, but I'm a, I'm a big Duke guy. So uh, there's always a chance, Carter. There's always a chance that somebody turns into a much better prospect player than any of us could really foresee uh, during this time. But there are two pieces of of evidence that I continue to fall back on that talk me out of wanting to be the guy to make the risk and say, okay, I think he can figure it out. The first is the square movements that he has. I think he's very, very blocky. Um, It reminds me a lot of kind of a lacrosse player, uh, you know, somebody who has very square movements and how they they move around the floor. I think that prevents him from having a natural position to guard. He's very, very strong and might be able to do well against those bigger body mismatch post wings. But I'd say there's probably what two, three or four of those guys that you're going to end up facing a year. 
uh, don't love his hips. Don't think he has very quick feet. So a lot of the mechanical things that I saw were reasons to believe that Griffin's just a lot farther away from turning into a good defender. The other part of data that I lean back on and which pushes back on your argument about Duke guys specifically is that coach K even took him off the floor in crunch time minutes and didn't want him on there defensively against teams like Virginia tech in Syracuse. And you might see it in the, in the video that's up here. Um, they ended up putting him as a face guard option against those smaller non-athletic shooters, not because Griffin is so good at chasing them around screens, but because he was a very bad help defender to the point where the best way to maximize him is for no one to depend on him giving help. It's just to say, why don't you go out there and face guard this guy, take him out of the equation, and we'll play four on four elsewhere and try to win without you. When he was on the floor, they had to do that. They would take him off in a lot of late game situations. He still only played 24 minutes a game as a freshman at Duke, despite being an elite shooter. What does that tell you? You know, if a guy has such an unbelievable offensive efficiency and arsenal, yet he can't be on the floor in those closing moments and, and is not playing a majority of the game, that's a worry for me. You know, it, it's funny because we haven't had a lot of AJ Griffin downside discussion. So that's why it, it's great no, to get I, a lot. I, I feel like I, I feel like I've been sobered up. No, I, I'm still in. I'm still in. Like I give me give me that shooting. The Cavs need it. Uh I let, let, let's get him healthy. Let, let's see if we can uh, get him working within the system. And the nice thing about Mobley and Allen is it does let you take some chances on guys. I mean, Lowry Markkinen's working at the three, and I don't think that's something anyone would have foreseen. So uh, maybe a young player that maybe just kind of needs to get a little healthier, get in shape, and, and regain some of that athleticism could work within this system. Now, one guy that you have really high on your board um, that I haven't heard a lot of talk about is Jaden Hardy, and I need you to give us your elevator pitch for him. No problem. Um, I don't think people realize how hard it is to be 18 years old and be given the keys to a pro offense when you're playing against pro-level competition. And at 18 years old, that's what Jaden Hardy got this year. He was asked to be the number one creator for the G League Ignite, and he was surrounded by really poor shooters. A lot of who he is as a prospect, he's a, a tough shot maker who isn't an elite athlete, but when you think about, you know, the context that non-elite athletes need to play in in order to, to be a really good scorer, you got to surround them with shooting. And all of the other prospects of the G League Ignite, Dyson Daniels, Marshawn Bochamp, Michael Foster, Scoot Henderson, they all shot under 30% from three. So when you're a non-elite athlete and you're trying to navigate through the lane and you've got the defense collapsing all over you, of course, you're going to look bad. Of course, you're not going to be able to get to your spots as cleanly as you would on an NBA floor. But I, I look at those excuses and I say, all right, I can buy into Hardy figuring it out at the next level. And I believe that he started to figure out towards the end of this season with the Ignite. Over his final eight games, he averaged 22 and a half points, five boards, four assists, a really good assist to turnover ratio, shooting 38% from three. By the end of that campaign, he was, I mean, we're talking about a, a guy doing that against pro level competition at 18 years old, 22, five and four while shooting 38% from three against pro level competition. If that's not an elevator pitch to be a lottery target, <laughs> like I, I don't really know uh, a much better case you can make for a guy because at the end of the day, we're talking about production he does produce he was just not placed in the optimal environment to do so how right. how much do you uh grade on the curve with these ignite guys i mean like like how how big of a if they're averaging you know 12 5 and 5 what what percentage modifier do we need to add to their numbers to account for how much harder the competition is because i think we saw kuminga actually kind of got hurt almost last year and then got to the NBA and we're like oh damn this kid kind of gets it already like how much do you value uh, the Ignite experience for these guys right now? I think the jury is still out on trying to figure that out because it's only been two years. And one of those two this year, it was just a horrible mismatch of prospects. Like, I don't think Daniels and Hardy and Scoot Henderson really worked well together. It's a lot of guys who need the ball in their hands and aren't elite shooters. Hardy was the best shooter of that group by far. Um, so uh, I put a lot of stock into it. 
I think what I'm going off of here, and this is not a great comparison, it might be even a little bit lazy, but you look at guys like LaMelo Ball or Josh Giddy, guards who played professional competition and came into the NBA and were seamlessly making that transition. Uh, I think the G League has a little bit higher of a talent pool than what they were playing against at the NBL. And I thought Jalen Green really figured it out at the end of this season to the point where I'm starting to feel comfortable in saying a lot of the guys that go that pathway might be a half step ahead of where somebody else is. Um, and they get the tiebreaker in terms of, of similar prospects, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Green definitely started to play really well towards the end of the year. And even Kaminga did, like he, even though he's got his limitations and uh, is obviously helped by the infrastructure that the Warriors have, he found a role and it was really effective within that role. And, and the one thing I will say on Jaden Hardy, uh, you know, we're talking about the infrastructure that the Cavs have with a bunch of defenders behind them. I think Hardy would be great to have in that type of system. I think that would be great for him. Uh, if Colin Sexton does not end up back in Cleveland and the Cavs need another shot creator, somebody that can go out there and score his own while being a catch and shoot threat. I think Hardy checks a lot of those boxes but there are going to be a lot of guys on the board here, like a Hardy, like a, a Branham, like an A.J. Griffin, who would benefit from being in Cleveland because of all of that rim protection behind them, all of the, the strong defensive infrastructure. So I think the Cavs are in a really good position to chase that offensive talent now, knowing that the defense is going to be fine regardless. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. And it's we, we've talked about it a bunch. I think the team building is a lot easier because of the defensive versatility that you have with Mobley and Allen and also the offensive versatility and how scalable Garland is where he can play on and off ball. It kind of does allow you to take the best talent available. And there there is one other guy that uh, I don't think Carter and I have cooled off on him. We may have kind of put other guys ahead of him. Uh, I, As I said, I really value the playmaking, especially for this Cavs team. This guy doesn't necessarily fill that need, but... He, he necessarily does not fill that need. He, yeah, he, he, he does not fill that need. But when we were pining over the possibility or like the concept of Jeremy Grant with this team... All of a sudden, this younger version of Jeremy Grant emerged with Tari Eason. What are your thoughts on Eason? Do you think that he could be a fit with the Cavs? And do you think he can play the three potentially with kind of this weird lineup with that they this, have? With this team specifically? This specific team. Well, if Lowry Markinen can play the three, um, <laughs> I, think, I think Tari Eason probably can. Like, it, it's about offense, right? Um, yeah. Uh, this is uh, Eason's a tremendous defender, really, really versatile, applies a ton of pressure on the perimeter, great in the open floor. I don't trust his shooting. I don't trust his offhand. Uh, you know, there are a lot of statistics that you can go digging for out there. And I, I found a couple on Eason when I was going through the process, like his production per minute is on par with a guy like Joel Embiid. Like he is a, a freak in terms of, how many points he scores, his rebounds, just living at the free throw line. Like he does so many things well and just produces on the offensive end. He also, for his high of a usage as he got, has the lowest assist rate of anybody that would have been drafted in the first round in 15 years. Wow. So if we're talking about that feel and guys that are going to be able to create for others, like Eason is not that guy. I would feel a lot more comfortable in buying into him as a toolsy defender who can put pressure on the rim. Again, this is, this is the theme of the podcast for me. If he can knock down shots from three and I see a wild in season swing where he was you know, barely above 20% for the first half of the year. And then above up above 50 and the final half of the year. I don't know but how. what I hear is up above 50. That's clearly the, the player oh. that he is. Cause, cause he, if you're talking about how Lowry is able to play the three, I think it's the recognition that they needed the spacing, right? Like, and with, with Kevin Love being better than expected, it kind of made JB Bickerstaff get creative with the lineups and usage. You go from Lowry Markinen, and we saw this all year, to even a guy like Dean Wade, who's capable of knocking down shots but doesn't necessarily have that gravity, the offense doesn't work as well. So that's the, the biggest question for me is how broken is Tari's jumper and can it come along? Because the Cavs do have a track record of improving jump shots and, and developing that aspect of games, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for everybody or be able, even if he is able to hit at a good percentage, doesn't mean it's scalable enough to get the volume up. Yeah, and, and I think this is the the time with the way the Cavaliers roster is constructed to make that swing on somebody who has a higher ceiling offensively, somebody who you trust more on that end of the floor, as opposed to adding another toolsy defender who may be able to figure it out on the offensive end. I want to ask about feel with Eason because that 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 you know nebulous word it keeps popping up as he goes through the workout circuit, which is, hey, we love him. Seems like a seems like a, you know a freak athlete. Feel is meh. Do you think that extends to hit the defensive end? Because obviously he is a stock superstar. Like the guy gets steals and blocks like nobody's business. Do you think he's the kind of guy who at the NBA level will kind of find himself out of position a lot? Or do you think the feel mostly applies to his, his lack, you know, his lack of, uh, of uh, offhand. He's not an ambi Turner. It's my favorite Zoolander reference uh, for him. Do you, do you think it's an offensive problem or a defensive problem for him or, or, or all in? Yeah, I mean, it's much more of an offensive problem than it is a defensive problem. Uh, I think on the defensive end of the floor, like I learned this lesson uh, coaching a couple of years ago. There's a really good player that we had who was a maniac on the defensive end of the floor and just produced, but you couldn't rely on him to make a, a great help rotation. At some point, like, why would you ask the road runner to drive 20 miles an hour down a highway? Right. Like, <laughs> you just, you just got to let the guy go. And that's the thing with Tari Eason. Like, if he's going to be really effective on the defensive end of the NBA, he has to play on instinct. He has to be able to gamble on the perimeter and make those decisions. Yeah, he's going to miss on a few, but he's also going to go out there and get you two to three transition points a game. You got to live with it if you're a coach who, who has him in their system. I think what makes, again, a team like Cleveland would be attractive for that because you have the backline rim protection to be able to allow somebody to gamble more. I just don't think with what Eason brings on the offensive end that it's a worthwhile trade-off. Yeah, I, I think I think the reason I'm still so enamored is I did see the Cavs get find themselves get a little locked into you know one identity that they could really succeed with, which was the Tower City lineup, the the Mobley Allen. And when they weren't when they had to play Lowry or Love at the four, the defense just tanked. And I see a guy like Tari and you say, okay, you could play the three and chase wings around, but just as easily you could pair with either Allen or Mobley uh, at, at the four five and you know give them a little bit more stylistic diversity uh defensively. Like I feel like they're kind of locked into playing one way right now. Do, but you just feel like the offense is it's just you know, there's just better prospects on the board for them. Yeah, I, I, I really believe in Darius Garland. I am a huge Darius Garland fan. So you, you have come to the right place. <laughs> so what Car- I would Carter has finally come along. He's, I, I think he might still be holding on a little bit. I'm not unbelievable. Sure. No, I'm not. <laughs> Welcome, Carter. But uh, uh, thanks. Huge, huge fan, and I would want to surround him with as many shooters as you can in the pick and roll, particularly if you're playing two bigs, because that changes the spacing of the floor and the gravity that you need. You know, Allen and Mobley, like I think Mobley is going to be okay as a shooter. Uh, I still think that if you have those two and another questionable shooter on the floor at the same time, you're just a spacing nebulous. Like it's, it's, it's not very good. So I would want to address that first on the offensive end before going after that kind of bench role player four for the lineups when Mobley and Allen aren't sharing the floor. So uh, I do want to talk about a couple second round prospects because the Cavs do have p- two picks in the second. But before I get there, I have one sneaky little question for you because the 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 guy that you know often gets mentioned in you know the elite defenders of this draft along with Easton is a guy named Jeremy Sohan. I, I now, was hoping that's where now, you were going. Now Sohan provides all the upside defensively, a little bit more contained, a little bit smarter. Um, he also can't really shoot right now. Um, and he also doesn't have a ton of wiggle off the bounce. Is he worth it to you? Uh, even though he's a, a similar, less chaotic archetype? Yeah, I, not, I love to lead your answer, but I absolutely love Sohan. Yeah, I, I'm a big Sohan fan. I have him with a lottery grade. I think he's a better prospect than Eason. He's not the type of fit that I would want with this Cavaliers roster right now. Again, I, I still breaking. Yeah, I still go with the offensive production uh, right now and adding a little bit more floor spacing over kind of, you know, really adding to the strength of the defense with where it's at right now. That makes sense. Let's move into the second round. Cavs 
uh, have one at near the top of the first round, one near the end of the second round. And, and you know, we, we under, or I'm sorry, one near the top of the second round, one near the end of the second round. I do want to ask more vaguely, because we know this is a bit of a crapshoot once we get into the second round. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, the success rates just plummet once we get this deep in the draft. Who are a couple players in, that are probably going to get picked in the second that you're like, what are people talking about? This is a first round talent. So one guy that I am, uh, I'm, I'm pretty high on is a uh, Christian Brown out of Kansas, uh, floor spacer. I, I hate the term three and D cause I think it's way overused in today's game, but can be a little bit of that three and D type of player. I think he gets up and frustrates a lot of his opponents when he's defending them can guard ones, twos, and threes at the NBA level, 40% catch and shoot really good athlete in the open floor. My favorite thing about Christian Brown, and I mean this in the nicest play, nicest way possible, he is a huge dick. Like he is awful to play against. And, <laughs> and I again, I love having guys like that on on my team. I'd love especially to be, a team full of sweethearts like the Cavaliers. <laughs> I, I would love to be able to have a teammate out there that's just always running his mouth, always saying something and chirping the other team, the most emotional guy on the floor. And guess what? He wins. He's just coming off of a national championship. He's walked into every gym since he was in high school and been overlooked and gone out there and just produced. I love his mental makeup with that. I It's very simple, but a good test for this is, would you hate playing against him? If the, if the answer is yes, then you probably want him on your team. Yeah, that would be pretty fun. I, I, I could see him and Sexton feeding off of each other's energy quite a bit. Uh, are, are there any other guys that stand out to you that could justify a first round selection that are kind of projected or mocked to be in the second round? Yeah, I really like Max Christie out of Michigan State talking about you know shooting specialists, a guy that might have had a little bit of a dip in production as a freshman this year, but still, I believe in a lot of what he brings to the table. Also, a, an underrated defender in that regard. Um, I, I think that if we were looking for more of a, a three slash four option, somebody that can play both spots, that Jabari Walker out of Colorado or Justin Lewis out of Marquette would be really good targets in that early second round range. And then if we're looking at the Cavs roster and, and just thinking about maybe getting another backup point guard, because that's an area that eventually they're going to need to add. Uh, I hear the name Andrew Nemhart out of Gonzaga thrown around a decent amount. I think he can come in and play a few minutes right away, maybe not in the postseason, but he can at least be a competent second or third string backup uh, guard right away. Sounds I like want... the type of guy you might want to have around if Ricky Rubio needs time to recover from his ACL tear. And, you, and I appreciate you pandering and, and naming a Canadian because if you didn't name him or Houston, things were going to get really ugly really fast. <laughs> I, I want to ask you one one player who you know you look at the physical profile, you look at the you know the the stat profile, and you wonder, okay, he's a little bit older, but. Gosh, he looks pretty darn good. Jake Laravia, Jake Laravia out of Wake Forest. You know, a, a big wing that has some you know decent assist uh, numbers, some decent shooting numbers. Why is he a? Why is he not a first rounder right now? Interesting. So I'm hearing a lot of intel around there that he might end up going into the 20s and probably won't make it to the Cavs pick. Uh, oh, interesting. 37. Uh, so yeah. I think I think he would be a great fit in Cleveland. And we talk about it, those guys who are really good floor spacers and shooters. I like his feel as a ball mover. Um, and while he's not the quickest on his feet, he does have the ability to be blanketed by Mobley and Allen behind him. So I would love to see LaRavia in Cleveland. I think that's an excellent fit. I just, I have not really operated under belief that he will still be there when the Cavs are on the clock again. That is absolutely fair. Well, thank you, Adam, so much for coming on. We really do appreciate all of your insight. Uh, one more time uh, for everyone that's stuck around, plug your stuff. Do you have any uh, videos coming up that you want to promote or any anything like that? Sure. So uh, you can find all of our work at the box and one underscore on Twitter, two different places that we really post it right now. One is on our YouTube channel, which is just my name, Adam Spinella, or the box and one dot substack dot com. Couple things we have coming out here before the draft. Uh, we're going to go over five guys that are just not really my cup of tea. Funny, I think we talked about three of them here on the podcast. Um, also, <laughs> doing a good tease. A, it is a good tease. Um, we also look at a couple of our our biggest sleepers to go in the second round, guys that we think are going to deliver a lot of value there. And then uh, as we just get to draft night, I would just recommend to everybody 
dive into as much video content, familiarize yourself with as many of these prospects as you can, because uh, it's, it's a really fun night watching the draft. I think we all got into this and, and talking about the draft because we love the suspense. We love the, uh, it, all of the uncertainty that comes with it and then fully embracing whoever it is that you end up drafting. So turn off those Woj and Shams notifications and just enjoy it while it's there. Uh, but I, I really appreciate you guys having me on here to, to talk, talk draft, to talk calves and, uh, and share the, the platform with me. No, no problem at all. We really appreciate your insight. And We're wildly it's finally, indebted to you. Carter, it is finally here. We do not have to podcast about this draft until the selection is in. I, I can go from talking myself into 20 players to one or, or maybe two. You know, who, who knows how, how many uh, picks the Cavs end up well, using? Currently three. Yeah, three. Yeah, but you never know. There might be a draft and stash guy. There's there's a lot of variables at play, Carter, but I, I cannot wait. Uh, we will be obviously recapping the draft on Thursday. Uh, so big thanks to everyone that tuned in today. Remember, if you want to support the podcast, you can like and subscribe. Click the notification bell on YouTube so you know when we're going live. If you're listening via podcast, leave us a rating, leave a review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, and help cook those books. If you want to be part of the Chase Downs exclusive Discord chat, send a screenshot of that review to chasedownpod at gmail.com however you choose to support us we really do appreciate it make sure you guys are staying safe out there until next time go cats